God, thank you for this church. And Lord, I, I, uh, I thank you for the things that you bless us with, the provision. I also thank you for the hardships. And I thank you for uh, being there for us regardless of what we're going through. And I pray, Lord, that you would minister to us this evening and speak to us through your word as well as your spirit into our minds, our soul, our spirit, our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to be a little bit ambitious and try to cover two chapters tonight. So 1 Samuel chapter 5 and 6. And to start off, you guys remember the Ark of the Covenant? It was, it was this rectangular box, approximately two and a quarter feet wide by three and three quarters feet long. And it had this lid of gold, and on top of the box were two cherubims who faced each other with these outstretched wings towards one another that didn't touch. So there's a little space there. And the box was made of acacia wood, and it was overlaid with gold. And inside the box were apparently Moses' staff, a jar of manna, and a tablet of Moses' law, or tablets. And on the corners of the ark were four rings where two poles could be placed so that uh, four Levites could carry the ark. And the ark was considered to be the place of his presence. And the ark of the covenant or his testimony. And in other words, the, the Israelites associated the ark with his invisible presence where Yahweh could be approached in prayer. And presumably between the four outstretched wings of the ark were a space where the wings didn't quite touch. And it was also a reminder of the covenant and so it was a reminder of how Israel related to God on the basis of the Ten Commandments. And the reason the Israelites wanted the ark at the battle uh, against the, the Philistines and themselves was to guarantee Yahweh's presence was there uh, for victory. And they thought that they had God exactly where they wanted Him. They thought that if they had the hollow, sacred, gold box in battle, God would have to give them victory. Otherwise, it would make God look bad. It would make them look weak. They thought God would have no choice but to give them victory. But it's such a wonderful lesson for us to learn that, especially when God shatters our, our false expectations about Him, isn't it? And we'll see that in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and 6. And we'll also see what graven images of Him we have to rid ourselves of. Not that we explicitly make graven images of God, but in the way we imagine and conceive and think about God. That perhaps in our expectations of Him, we make graven images of Him, and those are to be gotten rid of as well. So for example, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and chapter 6, verses 13 through 18, Yahweh appears to be a helpless God. And sometimes we conceive of God this way when He really isn't. And we'll delve into this a little bit more, but before I do, I want to point something out in the Ten Commandments. The Israelites might not have figured on the fact that the Ark was also a reminder of their covenant relationship based off of the Ten Commandments. And please keep this in mind as we'll also take a closer look at this later. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the massive defeat suffered by Israel after the Ark arrived and how that could make Yahweh look really weak. And the Philistines relied on this pep talk, this halftime pep talk, and the Israelites relied on the ark, and they just got slaughtered. They got demolished in battle. And perhaps it's merely just a box, but let's take a closer look at chapters 5 and 6 to see what the Bible tells us about the ark. So verse 1, chapter 5. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. 
So here the ark was with the headline to the Ashdod Chronicle reading, Israel's God Defeated. And, and this big front page picture showing the Ark of the Covenant sitting there as a prize of war right in front of their God, Dagon. In verse 3, And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon, fallen on its face to the earth before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. The author of Samuel believed in the only living and true God. And there's a, there's a lot of sarcasm that he uses, satire and scorn. And the writers of scriptures aren't always nice in their writings, but they're truthful. So here we get this picture that Dagon's image is on its face before the ark. And it's, just, it's as if Dagon, the victorious God, is now paying homage to Yahweh, the defeated God. And then the last sentence in verse 3. So they took Dagon and set it in its place. So to an Israelite, this is actually quite comical. This is a very sarcastic line. Like, your God needs to be helped up by people. Right? And so verse 4. And, and when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Now keep in mind in their mythology that Dagon was reported to have been the father of Baal. And we see that Dagon fell twice, but what does this falling down represent? The Philistines placed the ark before Dagon's feet as a representation of Dagon's victory over the Israelite people and their gods. And what happened when the people came in the morning and found that their symbol of victory was no longer symbolizing that. So when it fell the first time, it was still in one piece. But the second time it fell, it was more lethal. Right? Dagon's head and both the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold of the shrine. Only his torso was left. So Dagon got the... God beat out of him. Right? It was like fatality. It, it was the, Yahweh made his point. And it's quite humorous. But the point's made, and, it, and they use humor here. But verses 6 through 12, they're a little bit more fearful in, in the narration here. Verse 6. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us, and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of God of Israel away. So it was after they had carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both great and small, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron, and the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it go back to its own place, so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark starts out by being taken to Ashdod, which is in the southwest part of Palestine. We have a map available for you guys to see. And it's about three miles 
in from the Mediterranean. Then it makes its way to Gath, which is 12 miles southeast of Ashdod. Then it ends up in Ekron, about six miles north. They're just playing musical chairs with the ark, right? Because Dagon got the God beat out of them. And they found out that Dagon couldn't protect his people, couldn't protect his worshipers from the beatdown that God was putting on them. And we see that the cities were struck with what some scholars view as uh, medically as the bubonic plague. There were swellings, which is it, actually the, the Bible says swellings or the original, which is translated tumors, but it could even mean hemorrhoids. That, that, would, that would be a bummer. So the Hebrew word translated tumors or hemorrhoids, uh, who knows, it's swellings. So there's, there's quite a discussion as to what type of plagues the cities were struck with, but but we know that it included mice and rats. And we know that the fleas on rats carry bubonic plague. So bubonic plague is a possibility, but we don't really know since the Bible isn't all that interested in secondary causes because God is the primary cause. That's what matters. And so we do know that what they were struck with caused panic, it caused confusion, and having the ark was causing havoc in the cities. And according to those of Ashdod, causing havoc on their god Dagon. Verse 7. And what is clear is that these victorious cities being devastated by the supposedly weak god of Israel. What is clear is that the people of Philistia decided to get rid of the ark before it got rid of them and and they sent it back to Israel. Or wanted to. And Yahweh was bringing His judgment on those in Philistia. And sure, the ark was captured, but it wasn't because Yahweh was helpless. God is anything but, and this is irrefutable as we'll see by the time we finish chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means, return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, What is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel." Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he did mighty things among them, did they not let the people go that they might depart? Now therefore, make a new cart, take two milk cows which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the ark, and take their calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go. And watch. If it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. So the Philistines got all their leadership, their religious leadership, all their clergy together to get their advice. And they proposed offering a trespass offering. So what are the Philistines doing here? The Philistines are trying to appease Yahweh. They had little trouble with Israel's armies, but they were having a lot of trouble 
with Israel's God. And so they send these golden offerings of five tumors and five rats. Then they prepare this test as described in verses 7 and 9. But they're not entirely sure because in verse 5 they say, perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. They're just not sure if the offering of the golden tumors and the golden rats are going to work. What does a golden tumor look like anyway? That's weird. You know, golden rats, I can imagine that. Like a rat. I can, tumor. Anyway. And so they make five of them. And each of them for each key, key city of Philistia. And that's the trespass or the guilt offering that they make. And then the test in verses 7 and 9. The Philistines want to know if what happened was by, let's just say, intelligent design. Or it happened by chance. Let's just say that. So did Yahweh do this to us? Or did this just happen? And it seems that the Philistines were not overly superstitious people. They knew that the plague could be attributed to chance or natural causes. And they wanted a further sign that this was indeed the hand of Israel's Lord. um, And it was brought to them through this capture of the ark. And perhaps they weren't told of what happened to Dagon falling down in the temple, so they didn't have that background information. But what they're concerned about here is is just their physical safety. They're concerned about their health. Verse 7 is really interesting. The reason for hauling the ark on the new cart instead of carrying it on poles like the Levites did was probably due to the Philistines' custom of carrying their God on a new cart that was never used before. This was their way of showing respect. And you look at this interesting test that they used in verse 7. They used cows that have never been yoked. Never pulled anything. And they knew it would have to be a divine thing for this nursing mammal that has never been yoked to pull something to voluntarily pull the cart and to walk away from its young. Yeah, a nursing cow is not going to walk away from her calves. So they were looking for another sign to make sure the plagues were not just by chance or by coincidence. So if they go straight to Israel, to Beth Shemesh, then it was Israel's God who is responsible. And Beth Shemesh is not close. It's it's nine miles southeast of Ekron. And the idea is that if the ark returned to the land of Israel with those nursing cows, then it was definitely Yahweh. But if not, then it's a coincidence. So notice what happens, verse 10. Then the men did so. They took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right or the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the cart came into the fields of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there. So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. 
And the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. We see that the ark proved to be powerful. And the ark passed this test. And the cows went straight into Israelite territory. And the people of Beth Shemesh, they're just super excited. And do you notice how this story is so descriptively told? You notice the cows load? They included that in there? As they went and, and when the cart arrived at the people of Beth Shemesh, they were reaping their harvest. And they looked up. The cows load. Why? In protest. Right? They don't want to leave their young. It's, it's not natural for them to do that. This is supernatural. They're doing what's not natural. And this shows the Philistines that this is Yahweh. This is very unusual. And even though these, these events are, are so descriptive, please don't overlook this. Because this is really significant. And you have to take notice of this. Yahweh got the ark back to Israel all by Himself. He didn't need anyone to put the ark in the right place. Like Dagon needed to be put back on the shrine like the Philistines did for their god Dagon. Yahweh didn't need the Israelite military to perform the search and rescue mission of where's the ark? we got to find it. Yahweh, our God, got His ark back to Israel all by Himself. He's not a helpless God. He doesn't need anyone to bail Him out of anything. He doesn't need someone as with Dagon to gather all the king's horses and all the king's men to put together Dagon again. Didn't need that. God is not on life support. And God can't get the God beat out of Him. And Paul speaks about God in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. When he's addressing the people of Athens, it reads, verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands, as though He needed anything, since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. God does not need us. The true and living God doesn't need us. It doesn't mean that He doesn't use us. It doesn't mean that He doesn't allow us to serve Him. It doesn't uh, mean that He doesn't call us to obedience. He just isn't dependent on us. He doesn't need us. And isn't that good news? That's pretty good news. But sometimes, you know, we Christians, we get sucked into this type of pagan thinking when we think that we have a helpless God. When we think about our uh, what God can't do without our assistance, our help. How we think that we can't meet our church budgets or how we think what will happen if a regeneration was no longer in this neighborhood. Oh no, what's going to happen if the church isn't here anymore? I'll tell you what will happen. God will continue to be God. That's what will happen. It's as simple as that. And maybe we think too highly of ourselves. Thinking that we have the right formula of ministry for our community and that God is anxiously awaiting for us to come up with this right mix of ministries to accomplish what He wants us to do here in Oakland. Don't get suckered into that. Don't get suckered into that thinking. Don't get sucked into the thinking that God has no hands but our hands and no feet but our feet. It's a lie. I mean, it sounds nice. 
right? And it's a cool call to action, but it's just not true. God is not helpless without us. God will use our hands. God will use our feet, but He doesn't need them. And the other thing not to get suckered into is that God is unknowable. You look at verses 12 and 16, it seems as though there's no response from the Philistines. Don't you find that odd? So does God speak to people without the Bible? Does He speak to pagans? Does He communicate anything to them? Yes. Yes, He does. God communicates through His living flesh word, not just His preached word, not just the Scripture word. That's what Acts chapter 14, 16 through 17 tells us. When Paul was preaching at Lystra, where people thought that he and Barnabas, they were gods, and he tells them, hey man, I'm not a god. And, and this is what is recorded in Acts chapter 14, verses 16 through 17. Who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness. And that he did good gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. God did that. God is witnessing his goodness in that way to us. What did Paul write in Romans chapter 1 verses 20 through 21? For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, there's data in creation. There is data in the created order that points to the one who created it. So there are no excuses. And Paul is talking about pagans here who are without the Bible, without the written word, who knew God, but didn't glorify Him as God. Things aren't so different now where people are just like the Philistines in our day, are they? The Philistines go through this elaborate experiment that acknowledges God, Yahweh. They see the evidence with their own eyes. Right? They, they created that whole test. New cart, gold tumors, gold rats, uh, cows that never pulled before, nursing cow moms, and going straight to Israel. And so they're saying like, oh, that was, that was cool. Those, that, all those tests that we did, they, they worked. It was their God. And they walked for nine miles straight. They didn't go left or right. And straight to Beth Shemesh. That was cool, huh, guys? Let's go home. They didn't respond. They didn't respond. They didn't grab hold of the truth. Even though that experiment was theirs, they did it. What's going on? What should they have done? When the nursing cows that were never yoked before went straight to Beth Shemesh, God was speaking to the Philistines. That's a supernatural thing. God was speaking to God was speaking to pagans. God was speaking to non-believers. Could they not see that God was doing something to that was do worship? That that worship was due to Yahweh, Israel's God? Couldn't they see that Dagon was a false god and shouldn't be worshipped? Where's the appropriate response here? It's not here. They're spiritually blind. There was hope offered to the Gentiles, to the pagans in 1 Samuel chapter 6, but they turned away from it. 
They went home. The evidence was there in, in a cow's nine-mile journey. And we can clearly see that God was drawing them. But what about people in our day? Because I would argue that we have more evidence that is more evident for people today. Look at the evidence that we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The Philistines didn't have what we have today. They had cows. We have Jesus Christ. right? They didn't have the data that we have today. He died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day. Yet people in our day, they have a difficult time with the evidence that God can even be known. And it's pointing to truth. Truth about the real and true living God. They're spiritually blind. God gives us truth, just like He did to the Philistines back then through a cow. But He gave us Jesus, and yet we still cannot see. It is a false thing to believe that God is unknowable. It's more about spiritual blindness. It's about the lack of perception, the lack of understanding. And we also fall into this as Christians as well, as believers of Jesus, don't we? We believe that we have the Bible, we have His Word, but still believe that He's unknowable, some of us. But He does give us evidence of Himself just as He does the pagans. And so some of you may think, well, what evidences do we have? We don't have any proof. What have you been eating for the past several days? Right? Why are you even alive today? Why are those that you love even alive today? Why do you have what you have? Why are you well enough to even hear this message? You know, why don't catastrophic earthquakes happen more often where we live? Because all the faults are all around us. Are we really as dense as the Philistines were? Are we really as ungrateful as they were? Do we think that we can't communicate with God and that He's unknowable? And there's a last graven image of God that I'd like to address, and it's that of the casual God. And I think this is the one that we struggle with. Some of us have the graven image of the helpless God, the unknowable God, and now I want to address the casual God. We see how religiously observant the Beth Shemites were, but now notice the strange part of the story that follows in verse 19. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. This is disturbing, isn't it? There's this act of sacrilege, and in Joshua chapter 21 and 1 Chronicles chapter 6, we're told of Beth Shemesh, and we're told that Beth Shemesh is a priestly, a Levitical city. And you'll notice the Levites being active in Beth Shemesh, according to 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 15. And there are folks there who knew how the ark was to be handled. There were, there were so many people who rejoiced at the ark's return, but there were some who were struck down. Why is that? Why did God kill so many Israelites? 
It seems that the Israelites of Beth Shemesh kind of went brain dead for a little bit. They thought they could be curious about the ark because they had done a religious thing earlier in the verses uh, when they were how they dealt with uh, the Philistines' religious monument that they built. But they thought wrong. See, this was a, a city with Levitical priests who knew Numbers chapter 4. And they knew how to deal with the ark. But many blasphemed by looking into the ark and they found that their nationality didn't seem to be helping much with this. This is like some people today, isn't it? Where they don't regard parts of the Bible and they treat what the Bible says so casually. Like the Israelites who thought, oh, Numbers chapter 4? Ah, it doesn't apply to us. Ah, that's okay. There are people today who think God loves them so much more than others that they can be cavalier with the things of God. That they can be casual with God and not revere His Word to us. And there are some nationalities and there are some groups out there who think, I'm special. Thinking like the Israelites and that the Scriptures don't apply to them because they're special. That parts of the Scriptures don't apply to them because they're the exception. Some people think that their denomination is superior and and so they get arrogant with the things of God. There are seminary students and professors who believe this. And you know what? This is a really, really dangerous way to think. This is a very dangerous attitude to have. We have to remember, we have to remember this. God is not a respecter of persons. He's not. No one is exempt from His Word. God's Word applies to everyone. And may we not be so casual with His Word that we become sacrilegious. We have to be mindful of our thinking and our attitudes towards a holy God. He's holy. Take a look at these two verses here. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 8 and 1 Samuel 6, verse 20. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. These are non-believers. Now look at chapter 6, verse 20, because these are believers. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? Do you notice that both of these groups have much in common in their attitudes towards encountering a holy God? The holiness of God? They both acknowledge that it's dangerous. Believer or non-believer. And they both want distance from the Lord of glory. But the Israelites also understand something else. That God is holy as well as dangerous. And in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20, the Israelites actually make a profound comment. Right? Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? Who? That's very profound. But in verse 21, they blew it. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of kirjath Jerem, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. The ark was sent away. Just like non-believers sending it away. The ark was sent to Kirjath Jerem, about 10 miles away from Beth Shemesh, even longer or farther away than what the pagans did. They were just like the Philistines in that they wanted to distance themselves from the Lord of glory. But their question in verse 20, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? That's accurate. God is not casual 
God is not our homeboy. Right? And even though we don't have the ark with us, we, we can still have that same attitude towards God that what God has said doesn't really matter and that His Word isn't all that serious or doesn't pertain to me or this special group or whatever. And our thinking can be really dangerous and sometimes our culture can influence the way we think about God rather than having God shape how we think about culture. Sometimes we are mistaken in thinking that God is the essence of tolerance. And His greatest attribute is being nice and being tolerant. Sometimes we have the attitude that God is our pal. He's our cuz. Rather than remembering He's holy. He's sovereign. He's to be obeyed. And some of us have constructed this graven image of a casual God. The proper attitude towards God is to recognize it's a dangerous matter to come into the presence of a holy and glorious God. And I pray we would fear confusing intimacy with familiarity. We can be intimate with Jesus. We can be intimate with God. But God forbid we become familiar with Him. Where we think that He's our homeboy. May we approach God with the attitude of Psalm chapter 24, verse 3. Psalm chapter 24, verse 3 asks this question. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in His holy place? Rhetorical questions. May we have a reverential fear as in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. Do we tremble at God's word anymore? Or are we worshiping a graven image of a casual God? Before we conclude, I'd like to point some things out in chapters 5 and 6. There are roughly seven stories about the ark in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and 6. In the first story, the ark just seems really weak. But the next story is totally opposite. And we found that dealing with the ark is dangerous. The power is eluded in, in strong fashion against other gods, pagan Philistines and Israelites as well. So why was the ark so weak? Why was it so impotent, powerless, when the Israelites were so zealous in believing in its power in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 4-11? through 11? Why is that? Well, two main issues. The first issue, nowhere does it say that the Israelites prayed. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, they never prayed. They got together and they came up with some good ideas and, and they got some religious help and some input and stuff, but they never prayed. They believed in the symbol, but were not speaking with the Lord, who's behind the symbol. God is a person. God is not the force right, or a source of power. He can't be manipulated. Right? He will answer our humble prayers, our earnest prayers, but He is not going to be manipulated. He's dangerous. He's holy, but He's seemingly silent, powerless, impotent to those who try to use Him, to manipulate Him. In fact, those who attempted to manipulate Him found how disastrous that was. Do you recall 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 11, what happened? Hophni and Phinehas died. 
Then the second thing is that inside of the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments. And they were designed to regulate the relationship with the Lord and show the people how to be around Him. And the Ten Commandments were a guide to help the people know what the terms of the covenant with this holy, powerful God were to be. And we talked about false images and those graven images, right? What were the first two commandments? No other gods before me. No idols. Let's just jump into chapter 7, just the first four verses here. Then the men of kirjath Jerem came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in kirjath Jerem a long time. It was there twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve Him only. And He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and serve the Lord only. Do we have other gods before us? Do we have graven images that we've created? Do we have idols? May we know the real God and not a God that we have made in our image. We were made in His image. May we not worship a God that we have to carry, but worship a God that carries us. We have to smash those graven images of God and follow the true and living God who said, Come and follow me. Do we believe in a helpless God? Do we believe in an unknowable God? Do we believe in a casual God? May we not follow and worship the misconceptions of God that we have created, but follow and worship the true and living God. May God help us know the difference, and may we follow and worship the Lord in fear, in trembling, in love, and in adoration. Let's pray. Lord, I ask for forgiveness if we have approached you with anything less than reverence. We thank you for your patience and your love for us. And we ask, God, that we don't take advantage or misuse your love for us and think that you're some force or some genie or magician that does our bidding. In Jesus' name, amen.